from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Allie Brown. And today's topic is hysterectomies. We are talking about removal of your lady parts and all the things associated with it. What are the indications? Um, It's one of the most commonly performed procedures. Many of you might have experienced one or contemplating one. Um, Ask any questions that you might have. Share your experiences with us. The number is 1-877-672-7464. That's 1-877-MPB-RING. We will be right back taking your questions and your calls related to all things his direct to me coming up on Southern Remedy for Women right after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And thanks for listening. This is Southern Remedy for Women, the show about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I am your host, Dr. Michelle Owens. I'm a specialist in obstetrics and gynecology and maternal fetal medicine at, so the, much. at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And I am here with my esteemed colleague and co-host, Dr. Allie Brown, who is a surgical and anatomic pathologist. I'm also a clinical pathologist, if and you really too, want to split hairs. Oh, sorry. Clinical, surgical, and anatomic pathologist. We have to keep adding. Do we have to keep adding adjectives? I'll think of some more things I am. Um, in the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we are talking about hysterectomy, um, which I think is kind of a great thing to talk about. We're going to um, talk about indications and kind of clear up some terminologies. Um, maybe you are considering a hysterectomy. Maybe you've been told by your uh, physician that you might need one. Maybe you are thinking you want one. Um, so we are going to be talking about all things hysterectomy. Um, if you would like, you can give us a, a call. Our phone lines are open. That number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can drop us an email to women at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Dr. Brown. Hey, Dr. Owens. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Coming off this spring break week. Yeah. Spent about two and a half hours riding in the backseat of my car between my eight and 10 year old the other day coming back from New Orleans. Well, that's pretty awesome. Feel good to be here with some adults. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's it's interesting. I I think it's um it's really it. It's interesting that everybody doesn't have spring break at the same time, mm-hmm. but it's like spring break season because I um, have some friends who live in other places and they were talking about spring break in um, in April. And so I was like, mm-hmm. wow. But um, yeah, well, thank so, goodness for Disney World, because look, <laughs> it would be way too crowded if everybody know, right? had off. Oh, my gosh. If everybody had to go at the same time. Yeah. So um, it's it, but it, this is like a really good time, you know, to reconnect, um, you know, with the with families, give the kids a break and then just kind of have a chance to get away. Um, for those of us who didn't really get away during the spring break time, um, myself included, we kind of have been holding the fort down for the folks at work who have decided to take off. So we are anxiously awaiting uh, next week, I sh- I'm sure all the all the teachers and and other folks in education are kind of lamenting the end of this little break. But um, we definitely appreciate all the hard work that everybody does. I think, at least as a parent, I really appreciate how much work it is for um, people to take over the responsibility of not only educating our children but to be able to kind of 
keep them for about eight hours a day and <laughs> do that with a bunch of different kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, definitely, um, underpaid and oftentimes probably underappreciated for the the level of sacrifice and uh, the contributions that they make. I still think now about some of my favorite teachers from Oh yeah, uh, definitely. You know, right? for, mm-hmm. Like even from like kindergarten, like I remember my kindergarten teachers, my elementary school teachers, all those folks who were so instrumental um in in helping me to just to learn and to develop a, a love of learning. Um yeah. So um, we actually have a caller on the line already. Um, we are talking today about hysterectomy, but we have Lucy who's calling from Jackson. So we're going to jump straight to the phone lines and see what Lucy has to say. Good morning, Lucy. I'm calling about having ovaries removed after the age of 50. Uh-huh. Um, due to the silent killer, ovarian cancer, and... I don't know if that feeds into breast cancer or not, but thoughts on that, and I'll hang up and listen. Wonderful. Well, that you know, so that's a great question. Um, so first of all, um, when we talk about hysterectomy in general, because um, Lucy's question specifically relates to removal of the ovaries, which the term we use for that is oophorectomy, which is just removal of you know the ovaries. Um, usually, when that's done, um, you may hear physicians use the term salpingo oophorectomy, which means that we remove the uh, fallopian tubes as well as the ovaries. Um, When we're talking about a hysterectomy in general, a hysterectomy is really removal of the uterus. Um, And sometimes that can lead to some confusion because some people don't know exactly what was taken out when they had a hysterectomy. Um, So you can actually have a hysterectomy, which is removal of the uterus. As Allie says, I like to say the womb, but that's, you know, where the babies are if you have babies. Um, But... um, the organ that is the place that babies grow. Um, and if you don't have children, then it is just the primary female organ that's supposed to, that is also responsible for the sloughing of the lining every month. It's the lining of the uterus that you slough every month when you have menstrual cycles. So um, in any case, hysterectomy is removal of the uterus. Now you can have the cervix that can stay in place and you can just remove the top portion or remove the uterus above the cervix. That's called a supracervical hysterectomy. You can have a complete hysterectomy or a total hysterectomy where you actually take the cervix out. Um, And then depending on several different things, you may or may not choose or elect to have your ovaries taken out at the same time. So just because you've had a hysterectomy does not necessarily mean that all of your female organs are gone. Um, And so the decision about whether or not to have your ovaries taken out is contingent upon a number of things. Um, The first would be um, the reason why you are having a hysterectomy in the first place. And so this was a, a great question um, that's asked very early in the show. Um, so it kind of, we will probably expound a little bit more on some of these things as we go on through the rest of the show. But depending on the reason for your hysterectomy or the hysterectomy, um, one may or may not have their ovaries taken out. For example, the people who tend not to um, may be those people who are younger but who still require a hysterectomy. Um, And that is because the 
ovaries serve the unique purpose of being responsible for uh, secretion of hormones that um, also have a lot of other that have benefits outside of just reproduction. Um, And so if you have your ovaries removed at the time of a hysterectomy, then you can actually go into or you do enter into what what we call a surgical menopause. So if you remove the ovaries at that time, then you remove the source of estrogen that keeps you from experiencing the menopausal symptoms. So once that's removed and you no longer have estrogen being created within your body, you either have to supplement that with external estrogen or you go into menopause. So for women who are really young, that has long-standing implications because estrogen does more than just contribute to the menstrual cycle. It is um, there are some cardioprotective effects that we understand occur. It also conveys uh, protection for our bones. So women who lose their source of natural estrogen can also experience accelerated bone loss. So um, for those reasons, and also because of the other discomforts and other things that come along with. Uh, surgical menopause, younger women will usually, if they require a hysterectomy, will keep their ovaries. Now, the average age of menopause nowadays is around 52. And if you'll remember, our caller's question was about women who were 50 and over. So the thought is that if you reach an age where you are pretty close to menopause, um, where your ovaries are not going to be um, they're not going to be producing a significant amount of estrogen because they're because the whole point of menopause is when the ovaries really kind of stop doing their job. Um, then the question is, should you consider um, removing your ovaries at that time? Because even though they may not be producing as much hormone or hormones like they were, they still have the potential at that point to be a source of or a risk factor for subsequent ovarian cancer. Um, and, and ovarian cancer is a very difficult cancer to screen for and is also a very difficult cancer to diagnose in its earliest stages because many, there aren't a ton of symptoms and many of the symptoms um, are very difficult to tease out because they're not specific to ovarian cancer. They're kind of complications and, and symptoms that people may have just, you know, yeah, by the time patients have symptoms, often their the cancer has spread. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, um, so as far as the recommendations, you know, many, most physicians, when they have a conversation with a woman about hysterectomy, should always discuss number one exactly what the surgery is going to entail. So, question number one: Do you keep or leave your cervix? Question number two: Are you going to? Are they going to take out, or do they recommend taking out or leaving in the ovaries? Like what's coming out, what's staying in, um, and the conversation should be about whether or not, based on the reasons why you're having your hysterectomy, whether or not it makes sense for you to keep your ovaries or not. Um, when you get to fifty and above, in many women, the general thinking is that. Um, you know, at that point, they are not, they don't have much more time left to continue to produce estrogen. I know that sounds really sad as a woman. I hate saying that, but there's, there's a trick, like it, there's an, there's kind of an innate 
expiration date on them, so to speak. Um, they don't keep working or functioning forever. And at, at some point you have to say, well, if we're going to have this surgery, then does it make sense for them to come out? And so most of us would recommend for women who are 50 and above that they do go ahead and have um, their ovaries removed at that point because, you know, you're close enough to um, menopause at that time. Um, and then you can institute, whether it's hormone replacement therapy or any other things with the conversations of your doctor. Now, that's if the woman's already going to have a hysterectomy for another reason. Absolutely. It's not like, I'm just going to go and have my ovaries taken out because I'm 50. Correct. That's but different. there are some women, based on history, and there are very few of them, but women who have histories of breast cancer or other things or other genetic issues that are related to cancer that significantly increase their risk in whom those conversations make sense. And that's not really based on age as much as it is based on your family history or your own personal cancer history. And one thing about ovary removal for decreasing the risk of ovarian cancer, the the fallopian tubes also need to be removed because we know a lot about the histogenesis, the... the, Histogenesis. That's a pathologist word. About how ovarian cancer... um, comes to be. And yes. a lot of that, uh, a lot of evidence points to perhaps an origin actually in the fallopian tube rather than the ovary. Absolutely. So um, having uh, ovaries removed for, strictly for uh, risk reduction for cancer needs to also remove the entire fallopian tube. Absolutely. Um, we have got two callers on the line um, and we are about up on our break, but we're going to go ahead and go to Debbie, who's calling from Past Christian. Good morning, Debbie. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. What's your question? Well, I, I don't really have a question. I just wanted to point out, I had a complete hysterectomy when I was in my early 50s. And um, when I went back for my, you know, my uh, follow-up, and the doctor inserted this speculum. Yes. Um, it was very painful. And, of course, sex became very painful. And I don't know if that's a common thing or... Um, what, but I know that I experienced that after I had my complete hysterectomy. So, Debbie, can, if, if I may ask, when you had your hysterectomy done, did they also remove your ovaries? Yes. And when you did you have any hormone therapy right afterwards, or did you just no. go through the surgical menopause? I just went through the surgical menopause. Mm-hmm. I don't think my I don't know if my doctor was actually aware that something like that could happen. So quite yeah, so um, and and I think that sometimes there, I, I think this that's why I really enjoy being able to do this show because I think it's important that um, sometimes as physicians we'll tell we'll tell people things and we forget that people aren't in our brains and so there may be things that are in there that don't necessarily come out and I think it's really important when you are talking about surgeries and those kinds of things that women have have questions to ask or and sometimes you don't feel like you know enough to ask the questions but definitely yeah. make sure that you ask those questions now what you specifically have mentioned is not uncommon um, in women who experience menopause in general so you can start having um, discomfort with sex the other thing is that sometimes Sometimes, depending on, you know, how the procedure is done, there may be some shortening of the vagina that occurs with hysterectomy. Um, Additionally, as um, if you don't have additional estrogen or if you lose that um, estrogen stimulation 
to the vagina, then you can actually have more discomfort during sex. So some of that could be due to the process of experiencing menopause. The other part is that um, you can have just some discomfort initially after surgery at the area that has been repaired because when the uterus is removed entirely from the top of the vagina and the, it's closed, then that's a suture line, right? So it's just like if you had a cut or a gash on your arm and you have to sew it closed, it's going to be sore and tender. You're not going to feel it from the top part. You'll feel it from the from the bottom part or from your vagina. So any of those things could have been part of it. If that was something that happened and persisted, you know, I think um, estrogen cream, there may be some people who are uncomfortable with taking oral hormones. Um, And and there are some people for whom it's not appropriate. But I think something like estrogen creams and things like that may actually help to provide a little bit more comfort, um, at least during intercourse and just in general in your vaginal area when you go through the menopause, whether it's normal menopause or if it's a surgical menopause, that could be something that might help to improve your discomfort. So when that happened, did you actually go back and have that conversation with your doctor? Well, I had a male doctor that did the surgery and like, um, I can't remember because I had the surgery about 12, at least 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, I finally went back to a female gynecologist, and she prescribed the um, uh, the gel that you just rub on your leg. Mm-hmm. Can't think of what it was. Yes. But she gave me that for a while, and now I'm actually using an E-string. Yes, E-string's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that does help a whole bunch, so... Yeah. It's really easy. You don't have to think about it. Absolutely. Much, so. Yeah, and it's yeah. local, so you don't have to worry about a lot of systemic effects. It's a, it's actually a really good alternative. So awesome. Well, I'm yeah. glad that you were able to get that taken care of. And it's one of the things, for women who have had hysterectomies, a lot of times folks don't like to talk about sex or, you know, what happens after hysterectomy. Ladies, mm-hmm. ladies, ladies, we need to have those conversations with our doctors. Definitely. You need to tell them. Yeah. Absolutely, because that's your quality of life. And and there are things that we know and things that we can do to kind of help make that um, still be a very enjoyable experience for you. So when yep. you have a hysterectomy or if you've had one, the, the sex talk goes with it. It goes with it. Yeah, think th- of them th- as th- going th- together. Thanks Absolutely. for calling with this, Debbie, because I think you're probably giving really important information that a lot of women would not have thought about yeah. or might have been embarrassed to ask about. Indeed. And okay, we expect good. it. We expect it. And if we don't ask, you make sure you bring it up, whether okay. it's going yep. good or if it's going <laughs> bad. We want to know. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Stanley from Starkville, I see you. And we are going to go ahead and take our first break. You have been great already. If you will hang on just a minute, when we come back from this short break, you will be my next up. I promise. This is Southern Remedy for Women. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, here with Allie Brown. We are talking about hysterectomy, and you guys want to hear what Stanley has to say coming up next.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And we're back at Southern Remedy for Women, and we are talking about hysterectomy. Um, as promised, we have our phone lines that are open. That number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 And we are going straight to our phone lines to hear from our good friend, Patient Stanley, who is calling us from Starkville. Good morning, Stanley. How are you? Good morning, ladies. How are y'all doing today? Well, we are doing great. What's your question or comment? Um, I know this is predominantly a program about the, uh, the mechanics of the operations itself. But I was wondering if you could touch on uh, the BRCA1, I think I got that right, uh, predisposition. Uh, my wife's family uh, has had a number of women that have gone through complete uh, surgical removals because of that. Yeah, thanks for your question, yeah. Stanley. Yeah, they're the probably the two most well-known uh, genetic mutations that can lead to ovarian cancer, and there are more than this, but the two that are most well-known are BRCA1, or some people call it BRCA1, and BRCA2. Um, BRCA1 patients have a really high risk of developing breast cancer. So um, in all likelihood, if a woman lives to be, let's say, in her 70s and has the BRCA1 gene, she will probably will get breast cancer. There's a slightly less but still high risk of developing ovarian cancer. So the breast cancer risk, I'd, I'd have to look up for the exact number, but it's, you know, north of 70 to 80 percent. And the ovarian cancer risk is about 60 percent with BRCA1. So while um, the chance of getting breast cancer is higher, the risks associated with getting ovarian cancer are much more um, grave. As Dr. Owens pointed out earlier, most ovarian cancers are detected once they've already spread, like in stage four. I think like 60% of ovarian cancers are initially detected when they've already metastasized or spread, what we would call stage four. And at that time, of course, it's pretty much impossible to cure so because of that risk, women all often elect to have their ovaries and fallopian tubes surgically removed kind of by the age of 45 or when they're done with, with childbearing. Again, the ovaries and fallopian tubes have to be removed in their entirety. And that uh, greatly decreases their risk of developing ovarian cancer. It doesn't go all the way down to zero because we have some, there can be some tissue left behind or perhaps cells have already spread, et cetera, but it makes it extremely, extremely low. Also, women often elect to have bilateral mastectomies at some point as well. But of course, it's much easier to screen for breast cancer than it is to screen for ovarian cancers. And you said that your um, family members, your loved ones are positive for the BRCA1 gene. So the, if a patient doesn't know whether or not they're positive, if they have a family history, a personal family history of having breast cancer before menopause, so we call that premenopausal uh, breast cancer, or in a first degree relative, so that's a mother or a sister or a daughter, not really a grandmother or an aunt, it's a first degree relative, uh, especially if that person has had a um, 
breast cancer or ovarian cancer at a young age, then they should go see a genetic counselor. And the genetic counselor um, talks to them. They take a thorough family history and assesses uh, whether or not it would be appropriate for them to get tested for these BRCA genes. So it sounds like your family has kind of already done that. We often recommend that you get the person tested who is kind of at the top of the tree. So if there's like a grandmother that's still yeah. alive that can be tested, you test her rather than someone that's farther down the tree because, you know, that 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 gives you a lot more information about how um, the mutation might be passed to other family members. But sometimes, you know, that person's not you know available to be tested yeah, or has passed away. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, just don't um, that. The other thing is the, the vigilance. I mean, I think um, so. BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing, while they are kind of the, the well-known what we call, quote, breast cancer genes, um, the everybody doesn't just get get tested right and so just because so roughly about i think what 10 or 15 percent of all breast cancers are kind of attributable probably like five percent very low gets a lot of press yeah (laughs) to brca one and two so it's not one of those things so first of all the brca one and two testing is not screening okay so screening for breast cancer is done through mammograms Um, so brca one and two is not testing and BRCA1 and 2 is not necessarily indicated for everyone. So, again, your history is very important, um, and that information is going to guide whether or not you, like the consult with the genetic counselor or with your physician who knows your history, is really going to determine whether or not you would be a person who's recommended to undergo BRCA1 and 2 testing. Now, it doesn't mean you can't get it because... I think just about anybody could probably get it done, um, but you know th- it it would probably cost these are not, these are not inexpensive tests yeah, and for ten thousand dollars probably yeah, something like and that. And for those people who for whom it's indicated, then that's information that you may be that may be at least covered in part, if not completely, um, by coverage or payers, et cetera, in the event that it's available. But yes, if that index individual, if the person who's highest on the family tree. Um, is unavailable, then absolutely don't let that deter you from being tested. Um, Because if you have an indication for testing, then it's, it's pretty well understood that that is the right course of action if that is information that you're interested in having. Because again, it does tell you a lot about risk, and it gives you a lot of opportunities for other interventions that would not necessarily be considered reasonable or needed or indicated if you are not in that highest risk group. Yeah, and we've certainly heard patients that say, oh, I wouldn't want to know and this and that. You know, they kind of think of it as a death sentence. But like we talk about with screening for cancers, we talk about colonoscopies and all the things that people kind of sometimes want to push to the side. Knowledge is power. And then you you don't have to develop the disease, particularly if you have these genetic mutations. And also your children are at risk. You have a 50 percent chance of passing on that gene to your children. So it really empowers the entire family um, to be able to take early precautions and steps to live a longer, healthier life. And for Stanley from Starkville, now BRCA1 is one thing, but BRCA2 greatly increases the risk for breast cancer in men as well. So BRCA1 also can be found in men. Those men usually have a higher chance of getting prostate cancer. But men with BRCA, most men who have 
breast cancer, they have a very high risk of having yes. BRCA2. And so if so you are guys a, too. Yeah. And if you are a woman who had a male family member who was diagnosed with breast cancer, that's really important. So make sure that you let your healthcare provider know about that. Um, and that also, again, male, when you have a male member of the family with breast cancer, for those of you who, you know, watch TV show and other things, you know, men get breast cancer. Um, that's one of the one of the characters on a million little things is a guy who is a breast cancer survivor. Um, but if you if you have a male family member with breast cancer, just keep in mind that's that BRCA2 is um, is a very high likelihood. And so that's something that you always want to make sure that you bring up. We've got two more callers on the line. So we are going to stay on our phones and we are going to hear first from, I think, Ellie, who's calling from Greenwood. And if you're Ella instead of Ellie, I am so sorry. Or L. <laughs> or L. Like um, good morning. Good morning. My name is Ellie. Ellie. Okay, there you go. We made well, Ellie. We gave you three different versions of your name, so you could be whatever you wanted to be. That's great. So, yeah. what's your question? <laughs> um, I was calling earlier. I heard you talking about uh, not knowing some women not knowing exactly what type of hysterectomy they had. Yes, ma'am. It's not uncommon, I would say. Yeah. It is. Re- it really isn't. You'd be surprised. You would think people would know, but they don't. And if you don't know, that's not something you should be ashamed of or embarrassed about, because a lot of women don't. You could find out. Absolutely. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I was very young when I had cervical cancer, and the doctor told me I was having a partial hysterectomy. So I don't really know exactly what was removed. I guess my uterus. But I don't know what else. Yeah, so um, so I would say that probably if if it was for a problem either with precancerous or cancerous cells of your cervix, um, it was probably if they said partial, then they probably meant that they were going to take out just your entire uterus. Um, okay. And so there are lots of women, you know, we talk about um, when we'll, we're going to go into this in a little bit about reasons why women have hysterectomies, but that is one of them. So um, if you have problems, so we talk about the pap smear as being screening for cervical cancer. And that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And so some women will have abnormal pap smears. And when their pap smears come back significantly abnormal to the point that they either show precancerous uh, lesions or the evidence of cancer, then a hysterectomy um, is hysterectomy is an option for treatment depending on how abnormal those cells are and um, kind of what a woman's desire is for future childbearing. So right. if it was done for that, then absolutely they would have taken for sure your whole uterus and the cervix. Um, and then if you were very young when it was done, then they probably, the whole partial thing was probably because they left your ovaries. But if you really want to know for sure, all you got to do is contact the physician who performed the procedure or the hospital where it was done, and you can request your medical records in order to find that out. But I will tell you that if you didn't go through menopause um, afterwards, hot flashes and all of those other changes, then your ovaries were probably still retained. And that's typically what happens in, in younger people who have to have hysterectomies. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks so much call for your for call. A, call absolutely. for that operative note, the pathology report, and you can find out. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. So we're going to go on, stay on the phones, and hear from B, who's calling from Raymond. Good morning, B. Yes. How you doing? You're doing great. How are you? 
Okay, I got a couple questions. I turned 60, and I got a, they did a bone scan uh, and found out that I have thinning of the bones. Mm-hmm. And they diagnosed me saying I have osteoporosis. Uh-huh. Uh, but how do you know when you start having osteoporosis and thinning of the bones before you get to the age of 60? So that actually is a really good question. Um, And since in most instances, osteoporosis is going to be diagnosed by bone scan, it's uh, under most circumstances. Um, It's kind of hard to know if you are not a person who is already at risk. So we know that there are certain people who are at increased risk for developing osteoporosis. See, I had a partial. They took one over because I was having a problem with Heavy cycling. Yes, like ma'am. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was younger. But when you first get diagnosed with something like this, the doctors don't never say, or put you on a work program like you need to be on calcium, you need to take vitamin D to make the calcium absorb into your system. When I went to the doctor, I had to ask the doctor, because I've been reading in my uh, medical book said that when you are taking the calcium, you need to take vitamin D to make it absorb. And for like working up a program to help necessary women of America when they get to this stage in life with menopause and stuff, nobody tell you that you can take calcium or nothing. They just say, we got a shot you can take. So they want me to take this shot, P-R-O-L-I-A, mm-hmm. uh, they call it Prolala, that shot. Yes, ma'am. And when you take the shot, I read about it myself, and they don't tell me that you need to, what you need to do after you take the shot. There's no program to tell you that you need to be on calcium, how you should eat, what you should do. And that's why so many of us is going to the doctor and having a, a bad case for our conditioning. Because we don't have nobody to say, well, we got to work you up on a program with calcium, vitamins, and this is what you need to do. I had to ask them because I've been reading, and then they're going to tell me uh, that, yeah, you do need vitamin D. So when I left the doctor, they prescribed me calcium. I got to fill my prescription. They said uh, calcium was over the counter, but Mm -hmm. then the vitamin D. I asked them about it, so now I got to go back to the doctor to get them to find out how do I get the vitamin D I need, or how do I get the calcium? They just told me to get some over the counter. Right. So, B, you have made you've made so many good points. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you up right here because you've touched on several different things that I think are very important for women who either have had their ovaries taken out or who are going through menopause. And then you've also made some very good points. It's just a person who goes to to a doctor. So I'm going to kind of walk through a couple of the things that I heard. Number one, um, you were diagnosed with osteoporosis on a bone scan. Now, you had mentioned that you had one ovary removed. Having one ovary removed is actually not a bad thing because if they felt like one of your ovaries um, – needed to be taken out or could be taken out, they left one. And the reason for leaving that one was probably because you still had a good bit of time before you were expected to go into menopause. And so leaving that ovary would still have allowed you to have the benefits of estrogen production. 
So that part's good, right? Because you you have two ovaries, but if you only have one, you'll still be able to do what you need to do, whether that's if you're a person who's young and trying to have a baby or if you're a person who's done with your childbearing and you just are not ready to go into menopause or still have a good bit of time. So that's enough to confer the estrogen that is needed to help protect your bone. Estrogen alone is not the only thing you need for bone protection. So healthy bones are also you need calcium. And yes, vitamin D does help with absorption of uh, calcium. There are guidelines and recommendations for calcium. And the problem is that, you know, it's like these different things, right? The OBGYN and your estrogen from your ovaries, but then you're worried about your bones. And and so that's why I think primary care physicians, as well as an OBGYNs in some instances do fo- do serve in that role to kind of be able to put it all together for you. But the other piece is, knowing whether or not you're at risk. So you take your supplemental calcium if you're not getting it all from your your diet. So multivitamins can provide that for you. But then the next thing is you also need to know what your risks are for osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is basically like brittle bones or like as your bones, as we age, our bones take a big beating and they also start to kind of age with time. And as our hormone levels decrease, the support for bones also decreases. So that's kind of why women may sometimes, you notice that older people tend to fracture their hips. They also kind of tend to hunch over a little bit. Everybody's seen, you know, older elderly patients or elderly people who have the hump in their back or those kinds of things. Those um, the in the spine. Uh, which is called kyphosis. Those kinds of things are all related to wear and tear and decrease in bone mass and bone density over time. So some of that is a natural progression, but there are some things that can happen that kind of either accelerate it or to a point where it gets so depleted that you actually are at an increased risk for fractures and other things. So there are some risk factors, um, and risk factors can be medications, people who are on steroids for prolonged periods of time, whether they have inflammatory diseases or other things, um, that can help to weaken your bones. Smoking is one of the big things that helps to give us weaker bones. Um, of course, menopause increases your risk. You can have GI disorders like Crohn's disease and those kinds of things, rheumatoid arthritis, Um, And sometimes GI surgery, all of those things can put you at risk for having weak bones. If you are not a per, if you're a small statured person who's relative, who doesn't really have a lot of muscle mass, they know that we know that weight bearing exercise and those kinds of things helps to build up our bones. Um, But all of those are things that can help to decrease people who drink a lot of alcohol can also um, diminish their bone density. So all of those folks, if you do any of those things, you are kind of at an increased risk and you should be taking some supplemental calcium in addition to trying to limit some of those things that may be behavioral. Um, but yeah, and so so that first and foremost. The next thing, like you said, people don't tell you um, or they'll say take over the counter, ask specific questions. So somebody tells you it's available over the counter. Well, how much should I take? Because that's our job. Our job is to tell you that. 
And so if if we give you a general take something, it's available over the counter. Well, you know, you're not supposed to take the whole bottle, but how much are you supposed to take? So ask those questions. And it may be available on the back of the bottle, but still ask the question. That is perfectly fine. And physicians do not mind being asked those questions, because if we were going to write you a prescription, we would write out exactly how much you're supposed to take and when you're supposed to take it. If we're going to tell you that we can't give you a prescription or we're not going to give you a prescription, we should still at least be able to tell you how much to take. So there's nothing wrong with asking a physician those questions to make sure that you have what you need in order to be successful and be your healthiest and your best. And if if your physician's not taking enough time to do that, it's okay to pump their brakes and ask them. Um, And I feel like sometimes patients don't feel empowered to do that. That is not a bother. That is part of the job. So there's nothing wrong with asking those questions and getting those answers so that you can do your best to be your best. Tracy, I see you and we have to take the break. My producer is kind of rushing me off this uh, microphone. So we will get to you when we come back. Thanks so much for your call and we want to hear what you got to say. This is Southern Remedy for Women, guys, and we are talking about hysterectomy today. We will be right back after this break. Whether traveling through Oxford or Tupelo, stuck in traffic in Jackson or Meridian, or cruising along the coast in Biloxi or Ocean Springs, MPB goes with listeners wherever they go. Your company's message can go along, too. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting to find out how. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from you, our listeners. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Thanks for waiting. We are back at Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. The show for women and the people who love them or who were born of them or who just share the planet with them. That's everybody. It would be. We everybody show. show. Everybody. We are everybody show. Indeed. So we, um, again, have our phone lines open. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And we are going straight to our phone lines, and we are going to hear from Tracy, who's calling from Ridgeland. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. What's your question? So I am a late bloomer. I just had my first child at 43. Congratulations. <laughs> And um, when they confirmed my pregnancy, they found out that I had uh, nine fibroids, three the size of baseballs. Um, so my OBGYN, he tied my tubes after my cesarean. And um, I'm just wondering, because now, even though I've had real bad cramps throughout my life, now they've gotten worse. And then also I'm bleeding a lot more and clotting a lot more since I had my baby and had uh, my tubes tied. So I was wondering, um, we've talked about hysterectomies, but I just wanted to make sure that that would be a viable option to kind of solve these issues. Fibroids are the most common reason that people have a hysterectomy. It really is. Um, and so the other, and the other thing is, though, what I will tell you, though, Tracy, is um, it is not uncommon for women to report increased bleeding and a little bit more cramping um after a tubal ligation. Okay. And so, and the thought is, is this, that um, 
when you don't have your tubes tied, they're open, right? So they're open on the ends. And so some of the blood that is generated during um, during your menstrual cycle, you actually have two additional little openings besides your cervix that allow for the passage of blood. So you got like... You have three pathways of resist of uh, that are open as opposed to just one. Um, and we do know that this concept of retrograde menstruation or the fact that sometimes blood goes out through the tubes, that actually does happen. Um, so it's not uncommon for women after they've had a tubal ligation. And it doesn't happen with all of them. But there are some women who notice a little bit more discomfort and a little bit more um, bleeding well, it's not just a little bit more. It's to the point where I am, like, soaking a 10-hour overnight pad within an hour or so. Wow. That is yeah. that, that sounds like it's a, a, a big change. Um, and right. so, you're, and you're, so your fibroids can um, contribute to that. And it's interesting because during pregnancy, fibroids are really unpredictable. Sometimes, yeah. they, sometimes they can be, um, they can grow. Sometimes mm-hmm. they shrink. Um, and degenerate. Um, and then sometimes after you've your uterus has grown to support a baby and then it gets smaller again, it kind of sometimes can choke off the blood supply to the fibroids. And so they end up kind of getting smaller and not being as big of a problem. So um, it it is actually, yes, very much a, a re- rational uh, concept for you to consider a hysterectomy in that case, especially with large fibroids, if they are continuing to give you more bleeding because heavy bleeding, um, anemia, those kinds of things are one of the most common reasons. Um, some women actually undergo hysterectomy for pain. Um, if the pain is due to something that is related to the uterus, um, with the exception of endometriosis, um, then usually hysterectomy takes care of that. Um, with endometriosis, it's a little trickier because in order to get relief from that kind of pain, not only do you have to take out the uterus, the tubes and the ovaries, but you also have to remove or attempt to remove all of the endometrial implants in order to get total resolution. That's supposed to be your curative treatment there. Um, and with people who have chronic pelvic pain, sometimes hysterectomy does not take care of all of their pain. But for what you are describing, it seems like a hysterectomy could be a reasonable alternative. Sounds like you're um, at a pretty high risk for anemia as well yeah. with the amount of bleeding you're having. I am, I, I am actually taking, thank God I, I'm a pharmacist, so mm. I, can't, I know the signs and symptoms of mm-hmm. um, And so, yes, I, I am anemic and, and have been throughout my life um, periodically been anemic. So I know the, the signs and symptoms. And yes, I am. So I have been taking an iron supplement to kind of help with that. Um, you taking some vitamin C with that? Yes. yes. And Tracy, the other thing I wanted to mention, though, is that so that is one option for treatment of fibroids. But there are for a woman who and you've had a C-section, so you've already had what we call laparotomy or the big abdominal incision. But um, there there are also other treatments for uterine fibroids. So there's something called uterine artery embolization, which um, is where they actually go in and just kind of close off or decrease the blood flow to the fibroids um, that can be done um, in order to help the fibroids to shrink or to basically die off because you take off the, the blood supply. And in doing that, you can get a decrease in the size of the fibroids and also can concomitantly have a decrease in your symptoms. So if for those women who 
have fibroids, a hysterectomy is not the only answer. I just want everybody to know that while it is the most common reason that women will have a hysterectomy, that there are still other options that are non-surgical or not as invasive for women who may have uterine fibroids and who also want symptomatic relief, but who either A, may not be great surgical candidates, or B, who might not want to have surgery. It's not a small surgery. I mean, there are no, risks involved. Yeah, Absolutely. there's quite a, Especially when you have a small child, there are some uh, recovery time yeah. involved. Yeah, exactly. And and believe it or not, I've probably had about six major surgeries throughout my life. And I'm really tired of going under the knife. Understood. understood. So just know that there are some other options out there for you, too. Well, great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for your call. Yeah, I hear a lot of people, they'll say, oh, I just want to have I can't wait till I have a hysterectomy. But they kind of toss it around like it's just something that's going to um get rid of the annoyance of having a menstrual cycle but it's a big it's a big surgery it is a very big surgery and people always tell me i'll just take it all out and i think well so let's talk about that because taking it all out is a really big deal and here are the risks but the truth is that a lot of women whether they've struggled with bleeding whether they've had issues with abnormal pap smears and the anxiety over continually getting called back and those kinds of things if it is an issue of pain if it's these large fibroids or these bulky symptoms, the heaviness in their pelvis and the discomfort that comes along with it. And there are lots of women who dread, as we were talking about on our show about bleeding, who just dread the onset of their cycle because they just it's just such an inconvenience because there's so much bleeding and they feel so lousy and all of the other associated symptoms. So, um, again, it is not something to be undertaken lightly. It is a very effective procedure in many ways, and in many instances, it's very it's indicated. However, um, don't forget that for most surgeries, there are other non-surgical alternatives. And so if you are a person who either is suffering with a lot of other medical complications and is not really a great surgical candidate, or if you've had several surgeries and you're worried about the risks of an additional surgery on top of the things that have already happened, it's really important to talk to your doctor about the non non-surgical options that are available because fortunately in OBGYN, we do have many of those. We have um, a caller on the line, um, B, who's calling us uh, from Raymond. Good morning, B. I wanted to get some information about this shot that they're going to start giving me, the Prola shot, the P-R-O-L-I-O, that's how you spell it. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's like every six months. But when I went got the shot, the first one, they didn't tell me all the side effects. And after I got the shot in the pamphlet, it said make the lining of your heart tender. And you know, may have problems with that. And then a lot of other side effects. Mm-hmm. Is that the only treatment that's available for osteoporosis? So for us, so there are lots of different treatments for osteoporosis, and I'm going to be, I'm going to try to put this together really quickly because I got about 30 seconds to answer your questions. So Prolia is a relatively new treatment for osteoporosis. It's been around for about, well, I say new, it's been around for just about 10 years. Um, it's twice a year, and it's because you have been determined to be a person at high risk for a fracture or breaking a bone. And so that's the reason that it's given. It's not the only treatment, but for people like you who are at highest risk, that's one of those options that's available that seems to confer a little bit of a benefit over the recommended treatment. So keep in mind, just because it's a side effect doesn't mean that it will happen to you. 
Um, and in certain of our population, especially those at highest risk, fractures actually are a great contributor to overall mortality, i.e. death, in our older patient population. So we want to prevent those fractures. Yeah, the and chance in most, of getting a fracture versus endocarditis absolutely probably bigger, yeah. Yeah, so I would say that... It, have that conversation about your concerns with the doctors and make the determination if the benefits outweigh your risk. Thanks so much for your uh, for your call, and hopefully that helps. Good luck to you. So as you hear, guys, it's time to go. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have enjoyed talking to you guys about uh, hysterectomy today. Uh, as you know, Southern Remedy for Women is uh, produced by Superstar Jay White. I think Michelle McAdoo is our call screener because I can't see her back there. Um, for Dr. Allie Brown, as well as myself, Michelle Owens, thanks so much for listening and for your continued support of this show. We love you guys. Be with us next week at 11 o'clock. NPR's Here and Now is coming up next. <laughs>